Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to Podcarts Life is Like a Box of Records podcast. My name is Helena Rafai. Occasionally, we bring in special guests to talk about the songs that have soundtracked their lives so far. For rights reasons, music might be shorter than the original song. This week's guest is Ali McRae. Ali is one half of Detour Scotland. His career includes presenting Radio 1's BBC Introducing show, music management, and he is now a producer. This is the tip of the iceberg and his talents and passion for music are endless. Welcome Ali McRae to Life is Like a Box of Records podcast. Thank you so much for for guesting on this episode. Um, And we've known each other for about 10 years, I think now. Yeah, Um, about the past 10 years. (laughs) uh, Through, probably through Detour uh, more than anything, which we'll eventually talk about. But just for our listeners who may not know who you are, just give us an introduction to yourself. Absolutely. Um, I am a producer at the BBC, uh, currently making podcasts for BBC Sounds. Um, I've, I've kind of worked for the BBC on and off for quite a long time, uh, previously working on their new music brand, BBC Introducing, and working on Radio One. Um, I've also worked as a radio plugger and worked as a PR and worked in music publishing. I've managed bands, uh, I've put on events, I've basically done a lot of different jobs kind of in music and in media and making stuff over the last kind of 10 years which has been a lot of fun so yeah a jack of all trades is the thing you are (laughs) and you work very very hard as well um well so (laughs) (laughs) um so I've asked you to pick seven songs that have uh, soundtracked your life so far um and yeah there's uh there's a strong electronic element here and it's going to be interesting as we progress along but first of all I'm we might as well kick off with the first song which is uh, Biffy Clyro and out of their whole catalogue you know I mean why did this one stand out more than others this for you? one okay this one not not just because this is a podcast where you need to you know have some stories and come and tell stories about bands like I absolutely I grew up in a very musical household and we were in like a family Kaylee band you know, in my youth, so my Saturdays and Sunday nights would be spent going around sort of church halls and weddings. And I was a drummer in the band. Mum played violin, dad played accordion, brother played bass. Um, so was always surrounded by music and I played drums. And then I became a teenager and I was like, I'm going to be in a rock band. And then <laughs> me and my friends had a very, very sort of dodgy Biffy Clyro rip off band for a couple of years. And because I'm, I'm 32, so. I would probably be getting into bands around the time that Biffy were just kind of getting big in Glasgow, you know, pre mm-hmm. pre first album. They're releasing like the twenty seven EP. They're releasing that. Uh, what is it? The kids who pop today will rock tomorrow, which is probably exactly what I was going through at that point. Um, and yeah, I remember we, we were in this band, which at the time were called Aeronaut, and we, we did some stuff. I guess I would be like, I think I'd be like fifteen or sixteen. No, actually, that was before that. I was in this band called Red Casino, which is maybe the most cringe name on the planet. <laughs> and it was with two guys who were uni in Edinburgh. And I was like 15 or 16. And my friend Gav, who I went to school with, played bass. And we'd got a gig somehow at, I think it was like Whistle Binkies or Bannermans or something, on like a Thursday night. And it was like the first gig I've ever played in my life. So excited for it. We'd rehearsed, we'd done all this stuff. and um, then we got through, I think we got the train through, and then Gav's dad was coming to get us. Um, but long story short, Gav's dad had to come and get us a lot sooner than we thought he was going to, because we got to the venue, and they went, ha you're definitely still at school. You've got to be over 18 to play here. Oh, no. <laughs> and we, he didn't get to play the gig, and then were unceremoniously on the street, fired from the band, 
So at like 15 or 16, it was, it was so bleak. It was so sad, so unhappy. And then Gav's dad drove us back. I think he took us for tea somewhere and then drove us back to Glasgow. Um, and in the car on the way home, it was, it was man, this makes me sound really old. But it was when John Peel was still on the radio. So we're talking, it would have been pre-2004. So yeah, that would yeah. work out a bit like 2003 maybe. And Biffy were in session, doing a Peel session. And I think this would have been after... Um, before Infinity Land, but after um, their second album had come out, and they played No Such Thing as a Jaggy Snake, and I think it had been a B side, and then it eventually went on the Infinity Land album, the third record, where they really got big. But I remember they played that, and they did a cover of Fleetwood Mac and Go Your Own Way, and it was just like sitting in the back of the car, obviously super glum about everything that had happened. And I was just listening to this totally bizarre music and I was like, this is amazing. And I was never a massive John Peel fan in terms of even though I subsequently went on to work in radio, he was I was always a wee bit too young for that. Yeah. I remember that session just being like, This is amazing. A band from Glasgow are on Radio One, this is unreal. And my band's just broken up because we were renegades and we couldn't get in the venue. And yeah, but I don't know, that's on that and that story aside, it's just an absolute banger. It's like yeah. it's so left field, but it's so hooky, it's so catchy, it's total pop music. It's just an incredible song, and I was so glad when they put it on that record. And I think even now you'll still see tweets saying, you know, are you going to play it live or do an acoustic version of this during COVID-19, like whatever. I don't know if they have yet. Maybe they will. It's probably pretty hard to do an acoustic version of it. You said about the, the Kaylee band there. Were yeah. there any music uh, Was there any music that your parents kind of introduced you to that you fondly remember? Not really. There was one I was going to put in here, but I, I, I was so I found this choosing seven songs so hard because I very quickly <laughs> went, oh my God, I need like 70 to explain all the fun things I've done. Um, but yeah, there's a really, there's a, there's a Piper from um, Neilston where I grew, grew up in the south side of Glasgow um, called Finlay MacDonald and he's like big in the piping world really big in the folk scene and Celtic Connections um, really famous piper and he's got this amazing album called Pressed for Time which is it's mm-hmm. a bit of a kind of trad fusion I suppose like it's got sort of lots of 4-4 four, four beats and you know full band behind them but it's entirely uh, pipes and it's just him playing the pipes, and it's just a re- it's just an amazing CD uh, that's always to this day still on in my mum's kitchen. And I recently found it on Spotify because I didn't think it was on Spotify um, because it was like it was weird. It's weirdly been put online as like him and his band instead of just him. So all his other albums are there, and that's not on it. But I found it with some digging the other day. Um, but aside from that, it was all very trad stuff, and they'd be listening to like um, Take the Floor on BBC Scotland, like the Kayleigh Music Show. So yeah. in terms of rock music, not really. I remember my dad briefly mentioned that he once liked the Kinks. So I bought uh-huh. him, I think I bought him a Best Of for his Christmas once, and Waterloo Sunset, I love that song. Um, but I wouldn't say he wouldn't be sitting about in the house listening to that. It'd be more, I'd be trying to study, or I'd be trying to like play PlayStation, and he'd be stamping his foot and playing accordion. Or my brother would be practicing trombone in another room. Or, I don't know, I'd be trying to, like, I don't know, talk to girls on MSN and my mum would be playing the violin. And it was all very, at that age, you don't find that cool in the slightest. (laughs) University seemed to kind of really open things up for you, um, Sterling. So you were there and you ran Air 3. And it seemed to have introduced you to some key people in your life um that have are still very much present in your life as well um so what was it about those times that you kind of remember fondly oh totally yeah I was so lucky to get to go to Stirling University and you know to anyone getting to go and get a higher education it's it's such a such a privilege and I guess I spent that time doing exactly what you do when you're like 18 just go and get to party a lot mm-hmm. and learn probably not that much I think I, I'd actually got into um 
Sterling Uni at like the last minute because I didn't get into Glasgow Uni, didn't get into Strathclyde Uni. And um, I'd had a teacher who in sixth year at high school um, was just really cool, Mr. Collins, who like he taught philosophy like as a kind of side subject. But really, you just spent an hour every week sitting in a room talking about life and that and talking about music. And he was a huge Radiohead fan. And I remember he copied, he did me like a CDR copied, ripped off version of the Benz. And I gave him a version of Biffy's first album. And he'd like, I think he'd got into like education pretty late and he'd gone and been a mature mature student at Stirling Uni. So I'd always had it in the back of my head that Stirling Uni was like super cool and where guys mm-hmm. like Mr. Collins went, um, which funnily enough is what I did. Um, but yeah, absolutely. When I got there, I just totally hit the ground running. And I was like, this is a whole new world of people I can go and hang out with and meet. I very quickly found myself in the student radio station because that's where all the people that liked music hung out. Um, and yeah, made some lifelong friends there. Um, my friend David Weaver, my friend Ewan Robertson, who we then went on to start a kind of club night after that, after uni, we kind of ran the radio station. Um, my friend Rich Preston, who is now a presenter on BBC World News. So if you go on News wow. 24, like in the middle of the night, he's like there doing reports on all sorts <laughs> of things. He was actually the guy that got me into the radio station. I remember he handed me a flyer and he worked at Radio 4 for years and was worked for NPR, like working with the Europe correspondent and went around Europe, like doing all these amazing things. So it was like, I guess the people that got, I mean, if you get involved in student radio, you know, you're, you know, it's, it's slightly geeky, but so much fun, such a community, so many brilliant people. And that was the first place I started, like, I guess, making content in some way with bands. Um, yeah. And, you know, we DJed, we had a club night that raised money to get the radio station on air. And it was pretty, it was quite a lot of responsibility because, you know, we were left, we were working out licenses with PRS we were we had a really successful club night that was bringing in like thousands, obviously through the union, but every weekend and like hotly debated playlists of who was DJing that week. And then I think I was kind of the one that was like, we should get guests here and then trying to convince the union to give us money to hire like bands to come and play. Or I remember getting the excerpts to come and play. We tried to get Twin Atlantic to play, but they could only do an acoustic session. And um Frank Turner came and did an acoustic session, which for me was amazing because I love Frank Turner. I was really on the brink of putting Frank Turner on here, um, but just couldn't squeeze it in because, like, I was a huge Million Dead fan and I'd been going to see them even before I went to uni. I used to go to the Barfly a lot. um, And, like, my brother was in bands and he would play Barfly. And then, yeah, so there was, I was kind of already aware of like music scenes and getting to know people and, yeah, it was interesting. And then me and my friend Weaver just started doing this radio show where every week we'd just get as many bands as we could from the surrounding area just because we wanted to do something interesting instead of just playing them it was like right can mm-hmm. we get someone in and um we got another band cast Sleeps, who were like really big in the glasgow scene of that time um more on one of their members later um who me and weaver both loved uh and they came and did a session and i think we, we went to the early learning center and spent 30 quid and got loads of music like toys and we basically made them do a cover. It was a two-hour radio show. And at the start of it, we said, right, you've got, every time we play a song, you've got to try and learn a cover on these toys. And we didn't give them any preparation for it. And they totally nailed it because they did like MGMT Kids on a tiny wow. little, um, what's that thing? It's like, I can't remember the name of it, but it's like a pen and you touch the little metal keyboard and it makes a horrible bang, bang, bang. Yeah, but it sounded exactly like the MGMT song. Um, and there's some horrible videos of that on YouTube still to this day. And then, yeah, at the time we had Twin Atlantic came up and did a session, which was just when they were kind of on the rise and that was really cool. And I think because we'd done those things, then someone from a record label got in touch and Frank Turner was doing some massive tour of like every single town in Britain probably and sleeping on everybody's floors and he came and did like a set and he basically just played for 45 minutes on our wee radio station to probably about 15 people listening and then had to like jump in the car and drive to Dundee so it was all that sort of stuff it was just so much fun and I was just like this is amazing getting exposed to that world um and yeah I could have chosen so many songs from that time but yeah it was just it was big uni anthems and but there was that was the first time that me and Weaver my friend who did the show with and ran the station with were very much like, oh, we can do cool things and get attention for these bands that maybe not that many people know by just being really loud and being really shouty and doing silly things. Yeah. And your next pick must be one of the people that was part of that journey as well. And um, 
Meow Meow, uh, Gillian, who I feel is one of the most underrated musicians in Scotland over recent years. And this album, well, Virtue Fighter, uh, Light of the North, is such a stunning album. Mm-hmm. Um, again, what? why did you pick Meow Meow? Oh, I, like, I think he really sums up. So I think we've probably been aware of Gillian at uni times, but maybe it was a little before he started making music. Um but then after me and Weaver had left uni, we started this club night that you mentioned called Detour, which was just like putting on gigs and doing a podcast, kind of, but not really sticking with it. And then we started a YouTube channel and we were doing videos of taking bands, places. And, you know, if anyone's listening to the podcast, I'm sure they'll be aware of fun stuff we did like years ago now. Um, but I guess me and Weaver were just like, oh, we've finished uni. Let's go to Glasgow and try and take that same ethos for doing cool things with bands and put on gigs and kind of see where it takes us um which is which is what we did and i remember one we just came up with loads of harebrained ideas that were like let's basically to try and sell tickets to the gig was the ultimate idea but it kind of the all the stuff we did online and podcasts got bigger than the nights i suppose and yeah julian was just this incredible musician in glasgow that i'm sure it would have been weaver that clocked him first because it was just like really really interesting music and it was so different from the sort of things I'd grown up listening to it was it had the electronic influence and then I guess it kind of that kind of runs on we did a we did a thing with Detour when we were trying to make a tv show which really didn't work because we didn't have any money and nowhere to put it and we were trying to make Mm -hmm. a half hour tv show on no money to just put on YouTube which I guess say we'd done that five years later might have been the exact right time to do that but I think we're maybe a little too early doing that um yeah and it just didn't make any financial sense and it nearly killed us but it was fun and we managed to get to Bray Head and this song Virtua Fighter which is on that album The Light in the North um features Prophecy who's an amazing MC from Edinburgh and it was just that world of I think this song for me sums up that I'd probably come out of uni and thought I knew everything about every band or everything going on in Scotland and then I was like oh I know nothing I know this tiny little indie guitar scene I don't know anything about electronic music. I definitely don't know anything about hip hop going on. we did and you know we did sort of consistent monthly gigs for maybe like two two and a half years in bar block and getting people like Jules to play or getting prophecy to come and perform it was just like there is so much going on in this country like and even then at that time I probably thought I knew everything that was going on and still I was just one tiny wee scene in Glasgow and yeah it's that one sums up and then just because those two are on that track together bringing those two different worlds and it's such a good tune but we did an interview with them in um, Brayhead in a dodgem setup, so it was like <laughs> them on the dodgems while me and Weaver were in one dodgem and Prophecy and Julian were in another, and we were trying to interview them while burling about. I thought it made a brilliant segment for a TV show that very few people were watching, which was on the internet before that was a thing. Um, but yeah, I love it, and that album, man, it's incredible, and just so many times, and then. That it was around that time that I'd been really lucky to get a job on Radio One, and um, because I'd been doing all this stuff, and that kind of sums it up as well. Julian also worked in the radio show; he was the engineer for all the bands that were coming in session, um, and it was just that that, uh, that song came on my Spotify the other day when I was out for a run, and it just took me straight back to that time, which was mm-hmm. probably 2013, 2014. It just took me straight back to that moment. I was like, "That's amazing!" And then. I guess my next song um, would be Churches, which again just sums up that sound of that time in my life when somehow it ended up becoming a Radio 1 DJ, which was just so bizarre. And I was like 22, 23, something. It's pretty wild. Um, Yeah, and just that amazing music that was so electronically influenced, but so pop and so accessible. Um, Yeah, and loved it. And it all, all of those acts kind of come out of all these younger acts in Scotland that have just been doing things and creative things and not trying to get famous and not trying to do anything, just 
making good music and putting on gigs for the sake of it, for the love of it, which is cool. Mm-hmm. And I was going to ask about Radio 1. So, I mean, when you first found out that that was happening, I mean, what was your reaction? Honestly, and I've, I've told Weaver this before, I was like, can I do it with Weaver? Because it was just like, in my brain, I was like, I can't do anything in the world without Weaver. Because it's like, we were, we were almost like a double act and everything we'd done, we'd always just tried to kind of create, I guess we'd tried to create a new media because we'd looked at what was there existing and didn't think there was much at a higher level that sort of spoke to us, maybe like 10 years younger than what was going on in BBC Scotland or, you know, it was just a bit of a generational thing. And I think what we were trying to do was cover all these different genres in a way that could maybe be shouted about together. But, you know, now I, I'm all too aware of the inner workings of the BBC and it's not one person's decision. It was, you know, a decision down in London that they'd gone, right, we want one person to do this mm-hmm. one thing. Um, and then, you know, I was lucky enough to get tried out for it and then got the job and it's like, that's how it works. And my producer, Muslim, he would have gone through so many hoops to, you know, convince the Radio 1 people to take me. And my thing was like, oh, no, 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 don't get me to do it. Get, get, get my pals, get everybody in on it. Um, and I definitely felt quite guilty for that, getting that amazing opportunity that I don't think I'd ever really dreamed of doing, being a presenter. I was much happier just making stuff happen. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, you're not going to say no to it. Oh, yeah, I was working full time in a restaurant. And it's like, OK, do you want to be a Radio 1 DJ? Yes, I do. That's fun. Yeah. The irony being I should have probably stayed working in the restaurant because you don't get paid very much money at all because it was only two hours a week. <laughs> <laughs> Um, go- going back to the the church's yeah. song that you picked, so you put them, you put a gig on for yeah. them. Was it their first gig that you ever put on? It was their on? second gig. It was their second right. Gig. Okay. We got so close. Um, so this was uh, another one of. So I mean, we've been doing gigs with Detour in Glasgow. By that time, we'd been doing. We'd started this TV show thing on YouTube, which was like a half hour pilot thing that we did maybe five episodes of, and we'd try to podcast. Uh, and then one year we thought let's go to the Edinburgh Festival and put on gigs there because that's what the Edinburgh Festival was known for because at that time there was never gigs during the Edinburgh Festival. Um, so we, I think we took a Thursday night at the Electric Circus, um, which was such a cool venue. And yeah, we, we did pretty well with the bookings. We had some really amazing nights in there and because it was a different rooms, we had like little club rooms and we had the main stage and we had acoustic sessions and stuff. And it was super late night. Um, but I think we just stayed up every time and just got the first train back through Glasgow, whatever. But we managed to book churches. come out of lots of other bands and their first gig they'd done in the art school in Glasgow and I think the only people in that room were a hundred people who work in the music industry down in London and a few a few select people had managed to squeeze in um and there was so much buzz about them and I remember reaching out to their manager Campbell and just being like oh please can you come and do this gig it'd be so good and our big sell was we're gonna film it and you know because we were We'd got quite established at filming live gigs by that time. You and Ben and Gordon were so good at it, and they got it down to a T, doing mm-hmm. what you know should have cost you know thousands of pounds if you'd got the BBC to do it or whatever. But we were all just doing it for the love of it and for the sake of it. Um, and yeah, churches agreed, and I think we'd had to convince uh, JP to pay a lot more money, and the team who were working at the electric circus at the time, we'd had to convince them to like pay a bit more than we would have to anyone else because the band were really wanting it. And even, it was so early in Churchy's story that they still spelt Churchy's with a U, to which point yeah. we've got two videos on our Detour YouTube channel, which are like them playing The Mother We Share and Lies. And they're both tagged with a U. And there's just so many comments going, that's not how you spell it. That's not how, how <laughs> I've never been asked to go on and correct anyone. Can't be bothered. Um, but it's amazing. But I remember even then just being like, what, this is 
like being surrounded by so many bands in Glasgow and by that time working on Radio One and watching the careers and starting to understand of the industry of how a band, if they want to go and become commercially successful, have to do it. I'd watched a few things that I'd been convinced were going to get massive, but I was watching that, the way they were operating, the way they were being managed, the songs they had, the vision they had, the attention to detail they had. I was just like, this is like something I've never seen. And I think I'd be a couple of years into Radio One by that point. And knowing a lot of people who work at record labels and doing all that world, I was like, I've still never seen anything like this. And I've never I'd never been more sure that something was gonna get massive and and it did, amazingly for them, because they're so talented and they're such good folks. So yeah. And it's an interesting thing because you get a lot of people, I mean these success stories happen, but you then get bands that are trying or musicians that are trying to copy the same model with without the success. Absolutely. Um and I mean you've often uh been asked quite a lot for your advice uh on you know what pe- bands should do and people in their careers and so on. Mm-hmm. And and do you do you feel that well have you had that asked of you before when people go, well, how did they do it? And and we want to do the same thing. I mean, what's your re- response to those people? It's so difficult. And it's, I guess, because because I've done so many jobs and, you know, it's jobs that I'm so lucky to have done and a lot of people aspire to do. And especially if you're a musician, you just want an answer. And <clears throat> we'll get onto that then fell into music management. And I don't know a fucking thing. Like, and I think anyone that tries to suggest, even no matter how successful they are, that they know the secret formula of how to do it, they're totally lying. They're talking bollocks because there is no formula. There's certain things people are very good at. There's certain areas of it you can be very good at, but so much of it, you have to be absolutely brilliant at every area. And then you have to be very lucky. And then it has to be the right time. And yeah, I still do like, I've got like, multiple email addresses from all the different things I've done. I try and keep all my social media accounts kind of open so that people can hit me up. And I get a lot of questions. I think probably on average I'll get like two or three random emails or DMs a week just going, oh, hey, could you listen to this? Or, hey, I'm just wondering if I could get your advice. And I don't, like, I try to get back. There's loads I just don't go back to because it's just I don't have time or, you know, I would be spending my life doing it. Um, and I try to get back to as many as, as I do and even people I'm friends with I'll chat to and be like oh you could try this you could try that but you've kind of just got to go and so much of I suppose trying to navigate the business which the next song I've chosen is Pride's the band that I went on to manage mm-hmm. um, and my big thing was it was the right place and the right time for me to manage them and just now I only manage one thing and I only ever aspire to manage one thing at a time and I never want that to be my full-time job unless it went wildly successful and I didn't have to but we'll get onto that in a minute but at that time so I was DJing Radio 1 had kind of loads of different things going on and then through a friend of a friend I kind of knew the guys in Pride and the well at the time they were called Midnight Line and I was a big fan of them I'd been playing them on Radio 1 and they weirdly had a record deal already and had been managed by Adele's manager. And they'd got this record deal. And then very quickly after that, Adele got super famous and the manager left. And then the guy who had signed them to the record label then moved to a different record label. So the new boss of the label that they're on had suddenly got this band who, on the profit and loss sheet, they paid a lot of money to, they got nothing from, and there was nobody driving it. So, you know, those guys were really lucky and they'd be the first to say it. And they were smart. They you know, built a little studio and they just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, but they had nobody. And this just kind of shows the idiocy. And it's a story that happens so many times of major record labels that just that money is spent because there was a big lawyer or because there was a big A&R. And anyway, I just, I love the music. I don't have to lock the door. And I thought Stuart, specifically the lead singer, just he had such a voice on him and I'd always seen him play live. We got him to do a detour gig, actually. And um, they kind of got it together for the gig and they'd released a single around it just themselves, but with no help from the record label that they were on, <laughs> which is just bananas. And yeah, anyway, they 
I was there at the right time because I was kind of down to London all the time because I was working for Radio 1. And I kind of, then I just had this idea in my brain of what that band should be. I was like, in my head, it was a bit of a sort of male version of Haim because they could do these really good harmonies. Callum, who used to be in that band, Cast Asleep, who I mentioned, who had made do the MGMT cover uh, back in student radio. Um, he and Stuart had been writing together and I thought their voices complemented each other so well. And I was just like, this is, I can see what this is. And I could even visualise it on stage with a full drum kit because Lewis is such an intense and really good drummer, but an incredible yeah. producer as well. And it was all self-produced. It was all them. And he's a man who's meticulous in his detail and his organisation and was like up and in the studio at Haffey every morning. And they just wrote and wrote and wrote. And yeah, so my point being, I was there at the right time to push them. And all they needed was someone who could push them and come up with daft concept ideas and go and shout about them and go and get this record label that owned them, that basically owned everything they wrote and did, to give a crap. Um, so I did that. And then, you know, they, they really wouldn't listen for a while. And so we changed the name. And it was, a you know, it was in the time when blogs were massive and I'd sent it to a few American blogs and one or two of them posted the first song and then instantly everything just kicked off. Like every single A&R got in touch and I was like, already got a record deal. And, yeah. you know, they were like promoters got in touch and everybody wanted to do a gig. And, and then we rode that for like three years, which was insane. But I think that... Had they been signed when I'd started managing them, I think the the momentum and the things a label would have done would have been much more fluid. And the problem really came that once we got them to a certain stage, I and mean, we got them regularly on B-list at Radio 1, which is a very yeah. hard thing to do. We were selling out ABC in Glasgow. We sold out Coco in London, which is like 1,200 people. We were selling out nights in Southampton at the Joiners, the Joiners Arm, Joiner Rooms. I can't remember the venue. I remember driving down to it. It was a long drive. But, you know, we were selling like 400 tickets in Southampton. It's like, right, something's going on here. But at that very moment, that's when you need the major label to go, to, to cross over to real pop mainstream, that's when you need to spend the money. But because they'd been signed five years previously, you know, it didn't make any financial sense for the record label to spend any more money. So then you're yeah. kind of like, you're almost at the races. And it's just, you know, played the John Peel stage at Glastonbury. That's insane. <laughs> and it was live on TV. Like, I can't believe we got that far. Um, but in many ways, some of us look at it like it was set up to fail just sadly financially and and where you get that momentum because the whole game's about momentum but i would never nowadays go oh i know how to manage a pop band because i don't yeah i knew how to do that and i saw what the band were and one of the sweetest things that stuart's ever said to me he wrote it in the liner notes of the album was like ali saw a band that none of us could see because i could picture it in my mind i was like you're this you're that we've got to change the name you got to go there you got to do this um which i don't think is entirely true it was all them but that was just a timing thing. So whenever someone comes to me and drops me a Facebook message and goes, oh, I've got this new song, I've recorded it, I've put all my heart and soul into it, I've done this, I've done that. It's still like, well, I, unless I got a mad spark of inspiration, then I don't know what to do with that. I don't know what to yeah. suggest. It's like my, my biggest advice usually is what nobody wants to hear. It's like, find a mate who loves it and can do every minute. If you're no good at doing application forms and talking to people and networking, find a mate who is, and then they will write that story for you, you know, and they don't need to know anything about music. It's just, it's so, it's so difficult. It's the chance of success is 0%. The chance of making a living out of it is like 0.5%. Um, if that's what you're aiming for. Um, but in terms of if it's just get stuff out and get people interested, just be consistent. Make sure your art lo artwork looks good. Make sure you're consist consistently thinking how your output is appearing to the world. There's all those kind of basic basic advice things and don't expect the world in a year. Expect the yeah. world in 10 years or expect that this project might not work, but your next one might. And that project might lead you to meeting other musicians and then you make a different band and then at the right time that might just click, you know? But it's, it's exactly what you say, though. I mean, I, I get similar messages, but it, you unless do. you have, uh, you know, that real passion or you hear that one song and you go, my God, this is absolutely mm -hmm. incredible, then there is no point. You would never put that amount of work in as, as you quite rightly did. Um, now, uh, I know that you've, you're managing another project mm -hmm. now, um, Old Sea Brigade. That's correct, yeah. And um, who is... Stunning. Oh, I'm so glad you like it. Oh, that's um, great. Just so good. Um, and 
was it again about that uh just that spark of listening and going wow that yeah it was really funny because that was when I was living in London and I was managing pride and they were on a major label and I was kind of doing PR work on the side I'd started a company with my friend Lindsay um and I had like you know it was getting to the point that when I'd started managing Pride, it was like, this was just like, I think my exact words were, I'll do this until we get your real manager. I'll hype you and then we can get someone who knows what they're doing. But things started going well and we we, we kept working for three years together. Um, and I think it was maybe maybe like just after their debut album had come out, um, I'd got the business and the business was basically based on doing PR work and then money from, you know, the income was money from management, which is very rare. Even at, even at a level when you're playing Glastonbury or when you're on Radio One playlist, and then the other the sort of day to day was paid for by doing radio PR work and digital PR work, and kind of looking at someone sat down with an accountant every month. It was like, yeah, PR brings in the money, so I was very loath to take on another management thing because it takes so much time. It takes all of, well, the way I do it anyway is it's your entire life. You're talking to them every day, every minute. You're as involved with every decision as they are, and um, I in no way wanted to take anything else on. But then I got this DM from a guy that lived in Atlanta I'd never been to. And he just went, hey, man, you're a manager. I really need a manager. Do you like my EP? Which, again, I get still get quite a lot of those bizarrely, still get quite a lot of messages like that. And I just I just clicked on the EP and I had this one song um, called Love Brought Weight. And I was just like, this is unbelievable. And I, could t- I was like, let's jump on the phone. So we jumped on FaceTime and instantly I knew he was super driven. I knew he he knew what he wanted to be, if that makes sense. Like he knew how he wanted to portray himself, which is sad boy indie, man with a guitar, with beautiful, beautiful voice. And, you know, the kind of artwork was all kind of leaves and trees. And I was like, okay, you've got, you are sure of your visual identity in a marketing sense. And the songs are just like, that voice, man, I heard that. And I was like, are you 45 years old? And have you smoked for 44 years of your life? Like just this raspy, beautiful, like, and then being able to do that falsetto as well, in- incredible. So we just started chatting. And um, the reason I'd heard of him first, though, it wasn't that he just DM'd me. Correction. Uh, Tom, Gold, who's got the blog and magazine Golf Like Paint, yeah. had reviewed him. And then either he'd been DMing Tom or I'd seen the review and tweeted it. It was something around that, but it was, ta- it was because of Tom that I heard of him and had seen him and it was like weird that Tom was in Glasgow and this guy was in Atlanta and then Ben got in touch with me and I was just like this is insane and then within six months he had and again through absolutely no management acumen or any skills by me other than helping him plot a route and we'd started talking to agents and had started talking to record labels and done bits and bobs um a guy called Terry McBride who used to manage Coldplay in North America and managed Avril Lavigne for her first two albums and owns a massive record label called Network. Um, he Facebook messaged me and Ben and just went, I absolutely love this song, Love Brought Weight. Do you want a record deal? Like yeah. like that. And, you know, then I, I, by that time I got Ben a lawyer and got him all the infrastructure around him he needed to, to be involved in things like that. But again, it wasn't me hustling to get that. It wasn't any magic. It was genuinely because Terry, who owns the record label, had been scouting on Spotify and heard that song. You know, so these things do happen. But I think then the fact that Ben had an infrastructure and had a team would then give the label confidence. And then we got a record deal and we have been with Network for four years now. And um, we were just about to launch a second album campaign uh, before the pandemic hit. And Ben just mentioned to me a couple of weeks ago, he's like, oh, yeah, remember that? So Ben's friends with the English singer Luke Sitalsing, who now lives in LA. He's equally uh, unbelievable. An outrageous talent. Um, I'm really, I know Luke quite well. I did one of his radio campaigns and I know his manager well, Julian. Um, and Luke has moved out to LA. But before that, he did a tour in the UK and Ben played in Union Chapel in London with him, which is the biggest crowd Ben had ever played to in the gorgeous Union Chapel. I don't know if you've ever yeah. been there. Like, oh, yeah, see. So low in there. Oh, no way. That must have been amazing. Yeah. Insane. <sighs> Unbelievable. It's just the acoustics in it for acoustic music. It's, it's something else. And um, yeah, he supported them there. So they've, they've stuck up a friendship and. Uh, ben now lives in Nashville and Luke lives in LA and Ben just mentioned to me the other week I knew they'd been writing together kind of on and off and they'd been trips to each other's studios but then Ben just chucked me this four track EP that they've written together and it's maybe one of the most beautiful things I've heard in my life 
It's unbelievable. So in the last four weeks of thinking we were about to launch an album campaign where we were going to announce the album, announce a North American tour, announce a European tour, uh, have external PR in America and in the UK, which was all set up to go on the 10th of April. We've scrapped that, pushed that all back, and we are going to launch in three weeks. We're going to launch the Look EP. Ben was a very different kind of artist from Prides, obviously, in sound, but in personality, but he's also a little bit younger. So I think because I'd been through this whole machine with Prides of what the major record label was like, and I've, you know, got no no qualms with that. It was just an interest. It was just the right time again for me yeah. and Ben, and you know, it's it's in no way a living wage for me. It's something to do because I really believe in his music. But I would never. I think I would be, I would be unfair if I ever managed anything else at the moment because I've got a full time job working for the BBC, which pays my rent, and I wouldn't be doing justice to anyone, you know. And there are there are no answers. There are no clear things to do, which is. Probably I would have more time to manage if I didn't start other things, but I've got a podcast as well, which we're kind of on a little break with, called How Did You Manage That? Which is me and my friend Sophie, who's a producer manager, um, talking to successful managers, and I mean really successful managers. Um, And the first episode we did was with Jamie Oborn, who manages 1975 and runs Dirty Hit. And his chat was just like, I've just been riding it. And, you know, I think there's a lot of bluster and management and music and people picking themselves up, but no matter what, Jamie has been with the 1975 and Matty since nobody cared about them and yes yeah. you know they started from a decent place you know but he stuck by them for a long time when nobody would give them the time of day so management is a weird and interesting thing and I wish there was a solution for every band but I do genuinely believe every band has got an audience somewhere and you've just got to go and find it in some way and, and accept that you're not you know a lot of people think their music is destined for mainstream or think it's for radio one or think it's for one extra or think it's for radio two and it's like maybe it's not and in fact who cares about what radio station plays it but you've got a chance to get an audience globally so go and find that you know regardless of how left field or experimental or how niche your music is like it's there but you need to have a knowledge of marketing to find that and you need to have a knowledge of the industry and so find people that are good at that you know and yeah, and, and that's all. So I want to move on to your next pick, which is uh, "Gang of Youth." Yes. Um, and again, why did you pick this song? This one, okay. I was about to say nothing to do with music industry, but it is a little bit. Um, I so my my best pal David Weaver moved out to Australia for a year, um, and around that time I was working and living in London, and. There was some weird, just as ever, there was some weird connection. He was living in Melbourne and I'd gone to see Gang Youth and I had posted about it. And he was like, oh man, that's my friend Charlotte's friends. They're amazing. How did you end up at that gig? Blah, blah, blah. Turns out Gang of Youth had just moved to um, London to try and make it because they were really big in Australia, but I hadn't really broken anywhere else. And I just totally fell in love with that band. I just lyrically, sonically, the passion the lead singer puts into the live performances, they are just incredible. For me, they're the most Scottish, non-Scottish indie rock band to ever have existed. Like, they should be a band from Glasgow. And I want to make it strong. The heart is a muscle now. You know, they, they, they fit in for me and in, in, in my brain, the way I categorise it, they fit in with, you know, the Twilight Sad, they fit in with Right and Rabbit, they, they fit in with Biffy Clyro, the, all those influences. Um, and a weird story, not the reason I chose this, but I can't remember if I told you this before, they, after after Scott from Right and Rabbit had taken his own life, um, I was in Bristol and then I was going to see Gang of Youths in London. I think I was in Bristol for a work thing, and then I was driving up. Me and my fiance were going to see uh, Gang of Youths at the Kentish Town Forum, which I think was their biggest London gig. And it was a Saturday night, and I got there, and I think we were the only ones, probably the only ones that weren't Australian and weren't wearing vests at that gig because they've got a huge <laughs> expat following. Obviously, a lot of Aussies in London, and it was a it was a, it was a Saturday night, and they were all up there at a party. Um, and it was incredible. Like the gig was so good, but 
David the lead singer, four songs in, still hadn't said anything. And it was a kind of like their, their music is intense. It's very emotional music. It's not really bro yeah. music, but there were a lot of like guys with backwards baseball caps and vests that going, Yeah, Aussie rules. Just like shit, that was an American accent. I can't do an Australian accent. Um, but like screaming and shouting and hollering and, you know, down in two pint cups in one go and stuff like that. And I was like, This isn't a frat party. What's going on? And then they've got this one song called Persevere. And just mm-hmm. before it, um, the lead singer did this incredible story about Scott from Frightened Rabbit saying that, funnily enough, when they were an emerging band in Australia, Frabbits were touring Australia and he'd like emailed them expecting to get no response. And Scott had listened to the band and said, yeah, you should come out and support us. And that was oh, their first wow. tour of Australia. And oh. he stood there and told that story to a room full of people who, I bet lots of people knew who Frabbits were there, but the, the overriding feeling was people chatting and getting drunk at a party gig because they're all, you know, going to see their expat band. And I remember me and my fiance Heather just standing at the back just with a little tear in her eye going, that is the most amazing story ever. That, of course, yeah. I'm in London watching an Australian band and there's a Bloomin' Frightened Rabbit story popping up there as well, just doing the, you know, the generosity of the man. And... Yeah. You know, there's a real kinship, and that was just. And then from that moment on, I was like, "This band are just so special." You know, they're brilliant. Um, and this song, "The Heart Is a Muscle," it's it's a perfect, it's a perfect indie rock song. Um, and I took up running when I lived in London to, you know, kind of look after my mental health and get fit because I didn't do much exercise. I'd definitely not played football since school and all that stuff. So I got into running. Um, my fiance's family are really into running and you know, maybe to prove something to him, I was like, yeah, I'm going to get in a running too. And then in 2018, I signed up for my first marathon. Well, my, currently my only marathon. I should have done my second marathon today, but cancelled. Um, yeah. But I did the marathon in memory of my father. Um, it was for British Heart Foundation. He died of a heart attack. And I did this thing where just to to, to, to raise a bit of funds for it, the whole reason for doing it, um, I got people to kind of sponsor the my playlist. So it was like, I'll donate 20 quid and you can pick a song for my actual playlist. And I think you, did you either pick Anto or Watch You From Afar? Or I did, yeah, I did. Was it Anto or Watch You? It was, yeah. Amazing. That was an amazing shout. Because um, <laughs> it was quite a risk because I'd put out my, um, I'd put out the call saying, oh, if you want to pick something. And that's really putting yourself to the mercy of your mates going, are they going to pick terrible songs to to make me suffer even more? Or are they going to do it? And there was a really nice, nice mix of stuff in there. In fact, I've got it. I've got it here somewhere. I'm on my Spotify. Um, some of the songs in it were just ridiculous. And I did think to myself, maybe I don't need to listen to it and I can just pretend I did. But I remember being in the start line and going, nah, I need to do this. And I remember thinking about who had chosen which song. So yeah, there you go. The first song I had on was And So I Watched From Afar because I was like, I need this at the start. I need to be pumped up. And I kind of ordered it perfectly. And someone else had chosen Tiger Girl by 65 Days of Static. It's a brilliant oh, song. that's brilliant. So yeah. I put that straight after it. And then number three, I put Snow Patrol Run, which was just like, <laughs> okay, we're doing that. And then number four was the, the main song from Moana. So it was an emotional <laughs> role. And then number five was All My Best Friends Are Metalheads by Les and Jake. So it was a real a real mixed bag. But, you know, we had everything from My Humps by Black Eyed Peas to um, <laughs> Public Enemy, uh, to meatloaf, you took the word right out of my mouth. Brackets, hot summer night, which thank you was my friend Simon Pursehouse. That was painful listening to the whole of that while running a bloody marathon. Oh no! Um, but for me, I chose one song for it, and it was "The Heart Is a Muscle" by Gang of Youth. And I put it. I remember where I put it. So that's maybe like an hour into the marathon. So I'll need a wee push there. And I remember just crying my eyes out because I ran that marathon in Stirling, which was the last place I'd seen my dad, and I ran oh. past the chippy in Bridge of Allen, which was the last place we'd hung out, ironically, having a heart attack, having a chippy, go figure. Um, and yeah, it was a really emotional time for me and that song for me, obviously it's running, it's an amazing BPM for running to that song. It's an amazing running record, go further in lightness. Um, for any form of exercise, it's just such a big, grand record, but so intimate and so personal at the same time. Um, it's one of my favourite songs ever the heart is a muscle it's just incredible i could go on about it for so long no the passion's so infectious and that's something that you kind of have always been like which has been such an inspiration not only to me but to a lot of other people it's just that you just exude this positivity that it just 
it doesn't it's relentless um, <laughs> so Jack Garrett I remember I think it was a BBC introducing set yeah. and in a similar vein it's something that might be quite simple but he creates these sounds and, and arrangements that are just like oh my god you're such a talent mm-hmm. um, and so I was quite surprised to see him on the list yeah. Um so why did you pick Weathered? Well, I picked Weathered because so far I've just purely talked about music industry stuff and my career, and that's kind of my life. Like it's, it's all music stuff because it's all consuming. And, you know, anyone you know as well as anyone, it's like once you get involved in it, you're just like, well, this is my life now and everything has yeah. to get around it. But for me, Jack Garrett, yes, I booked him to come and support Prides when they played the Archies in their biggest sold-out show. Um I remember one of the bands standing up the back watching him play and go, he's playing that all himself, isn't he? Oh, shit. And it's like, yes, he's an incredibly talented man. Um, and I, I love Jack. I, I think he's an incredible musician. And he'd, you know, he'd toiled for years as well. And I'd kind of met him briefly when he put out his first EP when I was living in London. My friend Atch, who runs a label called Killing Moon, had kind of put out singles with him and, and different things. But Jack is someone who I entirely associate with my long-suffering girlfriend, now fiancé. Now fiancé for three years because we're going to postpone the wedding. Um, But that, I think, we've not 100% decided, but I'm pretty sure that's a song we're going to have on our, um, as our first dance, I think. Oh, wow. Because it's just, there's something about it. It's pure heartbreak. just reminds me of her and we both I think both, it was around the time but it would be we'd have been going out for a year or two but you know he released that first EP and both of us were like this is amazing just everything about that song is her and I don't know she's been a constant in my life for like the last 10 years and been so patient with all the random things I go and do and being very led by my career and going right I'm gonna go do this I'm gonna go do that and it's she's yeah she's incredible and she's done an incredible amount of work that it's yeah, I don't know. I, I was already on DJ for a brief period of time and at that time I was just a bloody arsehole just running about thinking I had to be this like party boy out all the time because to keep my job I'd need some sort of reputation and always desperate like going to gigs every night, so I was always there and drinking way too much and partying way too much. Meanwhile she was just like, Right, I'm moving on then and she started her career where she worked for the Roundhouse, worked at Roundhouse Radio, it's an amazing charity and an amazing venue in London. She then worked her way up to produce on Radio 1. She was working on the breakfast show. She worked on like the biggest dance shows. She made a documentary with Clara Amfo for Radio 1 Stories. You know, just had that amazing career where I think when living in Glasgow, it must have been a fucking nightmare living with me, just being out all the time and just passionately just doing stuff because I was in this weird world where, yeah, I was working at 2 a.m. on the radio and managing a band and tra- travel the world doing that. And yeah, chaos, not not easy to do. But yeah, I think when both of us hear weather, it's just a big sigh of like, oh, everything's OK. Your career obviously has, has changed a bit again now. And yeah. um, you're working with, uh, you're still with BBC. That's um, But the, I mean, the last year in particular, you've been working on some really exciting uh, projects yes. um, and obviously you've talked about the podcast there as well which has become you know successful have there been points during which that you've kind of really thought oh I just don't know if I can carry on working in this industry anymore and just that kind of fear of just losing your sanity oh definitely definitely so I have when, when was it, 2017, end of 2017, uh, I was working in London and I had my own company doing this PR and doing management. And I was very conscious that the road I was going down was very much like, yeah, PR, specifically radio PR is a very specialised job, especially when it's going into Radio 1 and going into 6 Music. It's, there's not many people do it. Um, and I was in a really lucky position because I had those contacts and I had that ability to do it. And, you know, you can get rewarded quite handsomely for doing that. But I just didn't want to be a dude in my fifties still doing that and still chasing things, and it didn't feel a place where I could be creative. And 
it was as a real treadmill of like if I wanted to get rich, yeah, I should have done that, but I just don't think I would have got anything from it. And I liked living in London, I really loved it, but I knew that wasn't forever because you just have to spend all of the money you ever make living in London. Um, and yeah, there was an opportunity to apply for a job uh, back at BBC Scotland doing something entirely different, but still working with new talent. So I applied for that job and luckily enough got it where I was producing short form documentaries for BBC Three. But the, the, the crux was I wasn't just suddenly coming in and being this director. It was like, no, my job was to go out and find young directors and young content creators across the whole of the UK and then try and work with them to create something that BBC Three would want to publish. So it was mm-hmm. kind of like a go-between. So there's all, so many people have access to cameras and you can make a documentary film on your iPhone these days or you can do, you know, there's so much access to it now com- in comparison to 10 years ago when me and my friends were trying to make a TV show on YouTube. Um, anyone can do it, but there's still a huge gulf into actually making that a career. So it's not actually that different from music you know I was very well versed in getting in touch with people and going hey this is cool do you want to try this do you want to do this and being very clear about what the contracts are and all that sort of work um and I guess that was a really important time for my career because I think I'd, I'd always aimed at maybe being a producer and making stuff happen but to do that you've got to have that awareness of where the money comes from and how commissioners think in telespeak or in 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 podcast world the radio world is exactly the same as having to be aware of how record label execs work or how ARs work it's just about going to those people and going right what do you want how much money have you got okay I'll go and find that and then that's it and you know in the BBC3 job it was amazing worked with an incredibly talented team my friend Susie and uh, Laurie Duncan who's been involved in so many amazing music things Um, and we just went out and found all these stories and told them you know we told stories of like this amazing guy Ben Mudge, who's a personal trainer in Belfast, who oh, was just doing that this. Was, <laughs> Did that you see was it? So moving, yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> He's such a dude, and he was like doing these YouTube videos, and it didn't have many views. And I was like, this guy is a ripped. He looks like Thor. And then I went on his Instagram, and he'd started dressing up as Thor. And it turns out he's got cystic fibrosis and he was doing yeah. that as like a campaign to show young kids who maybe didn't want to take their medicines or maybe felt like they were weaker or maybe didn't feel like a whole person because they had to take these really serious medications. And it is a life debilitating disease to see a guy that, that is that ripped and looks like the movie star who plays Thor. We just made a little story and the interesting part was he filmed that himself. We didn't just fly in as a BBC because he was like, look, I'm trying to learn how to make podcasts and how to make a YouTube channel. So over the course of two months, I directed him over WhatsApp because he didn't really like email. And I was like, right, go out with your partner and she can film you walking with a dog. So we directed this little, you know, very short form, like five minute thing for YouTube that then went on to get like 15 million views. That was a whole different, it was a total career shift. Um, while at the same time still men managing the guy old Sea Brigade. But yeah, that was really good. And then that allowed me to get into the world of understanding how TV shows get commissioned and how podcasts get commissioned within the BBC, um, which I'm now doing a project, which is about trying to trying to create a podcast for a kind of mainstream Scottish podcast, which I'm in the process of like piloting people over Zoom which is kind of strange, but that's good. You know, it's, it's, it pushes you a bit. Um, and then me and Laurie got commissioned to make a TV show about music in Scotland called Tune, which, you know, we had a vision for it. It didn't end up, end up exactly as it did, as we wanted to. We were really proud of it. We got live music back on the BBC, which is a very hard thing to do. Um, but, you know, the budgets are tiny. So we've kind of pivoted that. And now Laurie's leading, making loads of short-form documentaries about interesting stories in Scottish music. And that might be a punk band up in the Highlands practicing in their parents' bedroom, or it might be the story of Bits and Pieces, which she just did recently. You know, an iconic song to Scottish culture, whether you love it or loathe it. Um, so it's just trying to tell music stories in a different way that will, you know, be entertaining. BBC Sound of 2020. Yeah. Uh, who it was quite it was topped by Celeste who yes. is just incredible and weirdly your your next pick um which features Arlo Parks yeah. um that I blogged about Arlo and Celeste on the same day but what a talent and so I was really struck this year by BBC Sound of by who was you know in the running and so on it just seemed a bit more fresh this year um, and it was something that you uh, worked really hard on. Um, so why 
moving away from that, obviously, but mm-hmm. why did you pick this song, Sangria? Um, I picked a song, Sangria, for two reasons. Number one, I was I was just going to pick Arlo Parks because I think she's an incredible talent. She's now just signed to Transgressive Records, who like are the home of Flume and who started Foles, and are just a really innovative, cool record label. Um, her voice is outstanding. I think it was a real lesson to me, though, and I was not the biggest fan of the band Easy Life. Um, and that's fine. Most of the bands you're not fans of. It's fine. The, the, the way the BBC Sound of Paul works is we uh, ask, and I basically I, I ran the Sound of this year, and you ask 250 people across the music industry, across the world, who they think are going to be the big stars next year. It's a bit of a, it can mean nothing and it can mean everything in many ways. It, it was started by a music journalist who worked for BBC News 18 years ago, and he basically just went, this will be fun, let's just guess. And the music industry just totally changed, and there's loads of debate around it, and there's loads of should it exist, blah, blah, blah. But I got to spend three months in that world. I moved back down to London for three months, and basically I changed who the panel was, so it was much fairer, so it was much broader. And I think the reason I chose this song is because, again, it's back to that thing of working in music. You can't know anything about it. Like, I definitely don't... You know, I'd been I'd been working away for two years making documentaries with, you know, personal trainers in Belfast. I was definitely my finger was off the pulse, quote unquote. But I remember going to see Easy Life, and I, I hadn't I wasn't really into the music, but I went to see them, and I just totally got it. look at this massive room full of like 18 year olds freaking out and I think there's a lot to be said about you know there's so much in mainstream music that gets successful is so much about mood these days and Arlo and Easy Life are both hitting this mood that is such a laid back relaxed chilled out thing that young people especially and I'm talking like 14 to 21 are really reaching for because the world is so stressful now because anxiety is at the top of everybody's brain. Thankfully, people are talking about it, but the world is entirely anxiety-inducing, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of TV shows, you know, there's, there's the rise of kind of quote-unquote slow TV, like Better Call Saul, where not that much happens in it and it takes ages to tell the story. But that's because people are on their phones at the same time as watching something. And I think that feeds into music as well. And, you know, and it's almost the same way as Billie Eilish. Her music is slow, but people at gigs and at Glastonbury mosh to it and have these huge circle pits. And it was the same with Easy Life. And I was just like, this is amazing. And something just turned in my brain of like, there's no knowing who's right and who's wrong in music. And that's the biggest thing about a poll, because yeah. the BBC sound off is a poll. But it's like, what music is affecting people right now? And that's kind of what made me think about it. And Easy Life and Arlo Parks, I think, summed that up. And the same Celeste, she's an incredible star, but you can see she's got that star quality that people will go, oh my God, that voice. But I think there's artists like Easy Life and Arlo Parks that are speaking to a younger generation and singing about their anxieties and singing about some really open, heartfelt things. And it's connecting. And I don't know, there's just something about those two. And yeah, the other reason for choosing it was like, that was a... I guess, so I'd stopped working for Radio 1 because the show got cancelled and I lost my job. Um, and then luckily that was the time Prides were getting pretty good. So I was like, do you know what, I'm going to go and be a manager for a while. But, you know, I'd always left being quite sad that I didn't get to continue my career at Radio 1. And I think I'd always thought, well, I never want to be on air again. But I'd love to work in that environment because there's just so many creative, interesting people. And yeah, and, and, and I managed to do that because I was working for BBC Scotland. I was allowed to apply for that role and all the stuff I'd done in music kind of obviously did me quite well to get into it. And it was just fascinating to go back to Radio 1 and see it with a very different gaze because there's no two ways about it. Like getting, I guess, my dream job when I was pretty young definitely messed on my head because I was like, I'd, everything I dreamed of, I was like, I've got it. And it totally went to my head. Definitely an arsehole about it sometimes. And I was just like, so ran away with it and thought this is just a job you know and I think again if I'm working with younger musicians it's like just try and keep your feet in the ground where's the rent coming from what's going on you know it was just nice to go back into Radio 1 and yeah and not feel like I'd failed at that 
stage of my life, you know? Anyway, yeah. it's been deep. Uh, no, I love it. <laughs> um, so we are at the end almost. Um, what What's next? What's next for you? Um, oh, God, I have no idea. Um, just I'm, I'm at a stage now when I'm a bit older. Um, I'm valuing spending time with my friends, valuing to spend time with my family. I live back in Glasgow again. Um, who knows? Like I, I, I don't. I kind of I work uh, contracts with the BBC, so I kind of do six months contracts, um, which is great. I love working there. It's an amazingly like, creative team of people. There's some brilliant things going on in BBC Scotland, specifically like the social, and there's so many good documentaries being made in the new channel, and there's so many opportunities. Um, currently quite focused in the world of podcasts and I think there's a lot of conversational podcasts in London that get a lot of big limelight um, and there's not really that many from Scotland there's a couple but you know out with the music sphere and I'm like I wonder what that is you know there's no big comedy Scottish podcast really broken through on an international level there's no big entertainment one there's you know there's obviously lots of music ones but I'm like where's that kind of big hit one there's lots of football ones but yeah I'm kind of obsessed with trying to find that I just want to say thank you so much because I know that you're busy and um, it's, it's just really nice to catch up it is um, lovely to catch up yeah I feel um, very weird just talking about myself a lot no it's um, a good thing it's fun. <laughs> it's fun but yeah like I just I just wish I had is that see that question you totally had to nail on the head of like how do you advise musicians and how do you help people find that? And I just wish I could because there's so many amazing musicians everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it's not everything. I think the key thing is just remember this project is not everything. Like you should give it all your heart and all your effort and everything you can. But if it doesn't work, that's fine. You will have touched someone with that music. And yeah. Well, I wish you all the luck. And um, you too. Lovely yes, to hang out. Thank you so much. Thanks for chatting. It's always a pleasure. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.